HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. So today we'll be talking about uh, the Gulf of Mexico. My guest uh, on the line is Tim Fitzgerald. Tim is currently directing the Environmental Defense Fund's Sustainable Seafood Program and specializes in the intersection of environmental sustainability and public health. He is also a senior member of EDF's national policy team advocating for more sustainable federal fisheries management policies. Tim serves on the conservation board of Ecofish LLC and is an advisor to SeaWeb's KidSafe Seafood Program and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission Coastal Sharks Board. Earlier in Tim's career, uh, he worked with the EDF's corporate innovation program and major seafood buyers to develop sustainable sourcing policies for both farmed and wild seafood. He's a frequent speaker on conservation and human health issues concerning the U.S. seafood market and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and NPR's Fresh Air, in addition to invited testimony in front of the President's Commission on the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Wow, Tim. Way to make me feel bad. How you doing, Katie? It's great to be here. Welcome back to the show. It's really nice. I'm so glad you could join us today. Um, your bio is just kind of um, a little thumbnail history of like the last 10 or 15 years of seafood management policy in a way, isn't it? It's, um, you know, all of that sort of sustainable seafood programming stuff, which I think a lot of people think of as just kind of newly hatched, really has been under development for quite some time. Um, so tell us what you have been working on most recently, because I know you, you've got something really cool going on in the Gulf. Well, you're right. The the sustainable seafood movement started out small, probably about 10 or 15 years ago. But in the last, I would say, two to three years especially, things have really picked up. And now there are just uh, hundreds of people and dozens of organizations and companies uh, trying to do the best they can on this. It's a complicated issue. There's a lot to deal with. But uh, big companies are making commitments now, so so that's great. My uh, my work the last couple of years has 
has focused a lot on the Gulf because of uh, the events of the oil spill and, and what's happened after. Mm-hmm. And uh, from EDF's perspective, we've worked a lot in partnership with fishermen to get fisheries management right. And when the oil spill hit, we really felt like we owed it to those uh, cutting-edge fishermen to really help them protect their markets and ensure that their fish was safe and was still being caught sustainably uh, after all of the uh, the devastating events of Deepwater Horizon. So how did you do that? Well, um, we we worked with them to develop a program called Gulf Wild, mm-hmm. and and at its heart, Gulf Wild is three things. It's a program based on sustainability, traceability, which, uh, as you and your listeners probably know, is a big issue in the food industry right now. Yeah. Uh, and third, and, and at the time, most importantly, safety. And these fishermen that we worked with catch mainly snapper and grouper. Mm-hmm. So these are not the same people who uh, were fishing for shrimp or oysters or crabs, which were the industry's probably hardest hit by the oil spill in the Gulf. I would think so. Uh, but nonetheless, these, these fishermen for snapper and grouper still had a lot of concerns, and a lot of the seafood-loving public was um, skeptical or at least curious about the health and safety of their products. So uh, luckily this was a really forward-thinking group, and they wanted to do something really meaningful and progressive, and so we, we did what we could to, could to help them, and out came Gulf Wild. So Gulf Wild is basically a platform in which uh, fishermen can uh, essentially tag their fish from the boat and then it gets it stays uh, within some kind of a system until it gets right to the end user, whether it's a supermarket or a restaurant. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, every fish gets individually tagged. It's, it, it's a little probably one inch by one inch tag that gets attached to the gills. Mm-hmm. And... Those tags have the Gulf Wild logo, the website, but then the probably the most unique thing about them is that they have a, a unique uh, identifier in each tag, a, a number that is specific to that fish. And once that fish comes back to shore, uh, it gets uh, that data gets entered into the, the the database, and then anyone who buys that fish from that point on can look up that number on the the My Gulf Wild website and find out. Uh, where that fish was caught down to about a 10-mile grid in the Gulf, mm-hmm. and also uh, the the captain and the vessel that caught it, the fish house and the port where it was landed, uh, the species, and, and a bunch of other uh, information about the uh, the fishing process and all kinds of unique, colorful characteristics about the captain <laughs> and the boat, et cetera. So, uh, so it it's goes really right. just a way of connecting with the people who are who are catching and delivering this fish to you. So, so you have right down to vessel traceability. So you know what vessel that fish was caught on. Yes, and mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a unique situation in the Gulf because these fish are being caught one at a time or being brought on board one at a time. Oh, I see. Uh, so it's much easier to handle them in a way where every single fish gets tagged and every single fish can be tracked. Right, so there's no if trawling in the Gulf. like a... 
a trawl net or something that was bringing up much bigger volumes of fish at once, this program would be a little bit different. Right, right. I mean, they do have, I think I, you know, I mentioned um, in my show outline to you that, um, that I've actually, I wrote an article recently for Food Arts Magazine um, that showcased a couple of companies that are doing a very similar thing. I don't know if you know these guys, but up in um, Rhode Island, there's a group called um, Wild Roadie, and they use a computer platform called Trace and Trust, which comes out of California, and um, it's a very similar situation. Um, although those guys are using, um, they're using sort of mid, I think they call them midline trawls, um, but they can, they basically can trace every single fish has a, has a code and, um, and a chef can, you can yeah. scan that barcode right at your, at the table and see who caught the fish and what fish, what boat it came in on. Now, when yeah, you we talk- know those guys well, we've worked with a number of those fishermen, yeah. um, Trace and Trust is is mostly the trace the tracking platform, right? It's the, uh, and then yeah. Wild Roadie is kind of the the Are conservation the and marketing layer that goes on top of that. But those That's are right. uh, especially those fishermen in Rhode Island are doing some really great things, both on the marketing side and on the, the sustainability side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about sustainability, but I just wanted to um, uh, kind of get into the health of fish in the Gulf. Uh, I think everybody has seen on uh, you know one website or another some of those scary pictures of either dolphins who are dying or fish that have uh, abnormal scales or some kind of weird skin disease, from um, presumably from the contaminants left over from the oil-dispersing chemicals what what's the general health of the Gulf at this point? Are there areas that are cleaner and better managed than others or or that were less affected by the spill and those are the ones where y- you can feel secure about eating that seafood? Or would you say all of the seafood in the Gulf right now is okay? Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. I think even though uh, despite a, a, a safety testing effort that is unparalleled uh, in human history from what i can tell mm-hmm. uh the gulf is still a very big place and even though the oil was limited to a very specific part of the gulf uh, i think there is still a lot of justification for a continued testing program at least for the next couple of years mm-hmm. now luckily uh noaa which is the federal agency that that oversees uh the management of fisheries and the the testing program along with fda they did a really great job of conducting the testing i think part of the reason that there was so much lingering concern on the part of consumers was that the communication effort probably wasn't up to the same standard as the actual science effort and so there was a lot of conflicting information um sometimes it wasn't really reported in a way that the public could understand the sniff test was (laughs) uh kind of a contentious thing that uh I don't think instilled a lot of confidence in your average seafood consumer. So the sniff test was so, if you smelled oil or chemical smells, you should not consume the seafood. Was that the sniff test? Yeah, the, <laughs> they were actually people who were trained to do this test, and oh my God. and scientifically, it's fairly accurate. But when you you admit to the public that a majority of your testing is based on this, and they just show pictures of of uh, lab technicians wafting a fillet of fish under their nose. <laughs> uh, I don't think the proper amount of confidence was no. uh, relayed with that with that picture and that message. I, I, I totally agree with you, Tim. That would not fill me with con- with confidence. Um, we, but what- in terms of Gulf Wild, we 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 recognize that uh, there the con- the consumers had real concerns and 
regardless of whether the, the government's program was good or not, it was not uh, producing the desired effect. So, so one of the things that we felt was essential to the success of Gulf Wild was to actually do our own testing, mm-hmm. um, which went above and beyond that of the federal requirements. So you're so, doing, like, microbial testing? No, Lab just testing. mainly for the, the oil spill contaminants. So right. the, the PAHs, uh-huh. which are the, the organic component of the oil, um, the dispersants, which was another thing that it took the government a long time to get a test for, mm-hmm. and then also heavy metals. So, so we're testing for about seven or eight of those different contaminants. And luckily, we've found next to nothing. Now, again, these are fish that are being caught in deeper water that aren't as close to shore where there was a lot of oiling. Mm-hmm. So we weren't expecting to find a lot, but we wanted to make sure that that was the case. Right. Um, are, have you been surprised by some of the things that you've found that may, may or may not have to do with the Deepwater Horizon, but may have to do with just general pollution of ocean waters? I think the most, one of the most frustrating things from my perspective um, as a scientist and, and trying to um, look at the scientific and ecological ramifications of the spill is that there's just so much information that is still being guarded or not released to the public because of this whole legal process, right? So guarded you know, BP by hired BP. a bunch of scientists and consultants to collect data to support their case. Mm-hmm. The government uh, was employing all of its scientists to collect data to try and assess damages against BP uh, for, for eventual fines and things like that. And so each of these two sides are probably doing really good science, but not releasing it because they're, in BP's case, they're using it for their defense, or in the government's case, they're using it for their prosecution. Mm-hmm. And So therefore, they can't release uh, that information to you. to know that there's all this information out there that, mm. that can't be shared yet because of this and you don't, whole and, legal process. And at the Environmental Defense Fund, you don't have the resources, the funding resources, to conduct the same level of testing that these two entities are? Is that, is that basically what you're saying? Well, from a seafood safety perspective, mm-hmm. we've, we've dedicated as, as much as we could to this um, testing effort. But, for example, the, the test that I was telling you about before for the oil and the metals and the dispersant, those cost about $1,000 every single sample. Mm. Uh, if you're doing it privately through a, um, a pay-for-service type of lab, now the government can do it much cheaper because they have their own labs and they are doing a lot, but... Uh, over time, those the amount that's getting tested is less and less, and BP is given a good deal of money to the states to continue their own testing programs, but they've allowed it to be for either testing or marketing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it ultimately goes to marketing, which is good, but, um, you know, I think, I think there's a real scientific justification for for a continued testing program for, for at least the next couple of years. I hear what you're saying. Um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, in Gulf Wild, or what I saw on the website, is um, you mentioned fish fraud. And I, I heard about fish fraud first when I was doing the story on Wild Roadie. And um, I, I wondered, I don't think many people are that aware of fish fraud. And I, I, I wondered if you could just give us like a real quick thumbnail sketch of what, what, what does that mean? What's happening? Fish fraud is when you uh, spend your hard-earned dollars on a a specific kind of seafood and either uh, intentionally
intentionally or unintentionally, the person person selling it to you is uh, is giving you a different kind of fish than the one that you're paying for. So you're saying and that so people this really wouldn't... became famous in the New York Times a couple of years ago when they went out and tested uh, what was labeled as wild Alaskan salmon from a number of uh, New York City markets and restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, and and did some laboratory testing on it and found that. I can't remember, 70 or 80% of it was actually being passed off as farm salmon. <laughs> so you're paying for what you think is a premium product right. or a special product in some kind of way, mm-hmm. and you're getting generic commodity four ninety nine a pound farm salmon. So this is the kind of thing that would happen more likely in sort of a big fish auction setting or a fish clearinghouse, not when you buy from an outfit that's going directly, obviously, from boat to plate. Like the one, like Gulf Wild or like Road, Wild Rodeo right. or something like that. It's, well, the unfortunate thing about it is that it can happen in any size business and at any point of the supply chain. And sometimes it really is a mistake. It's a wrong label gets put on a box or um, a, f- a fish gets put in the case at the market behind the wrong sign or something like that. But other times it's intentional because there's a lot of money to be made from it. Wild Alaskan salmon costs... You've seen at the beginning of the season sure. upwards of twenty or thirty dollars a pound. Oh yeah, and farm salmon is almost always under ten. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, yeah, for, I can see a big incentive for the average for doing seafood it. consumer who is spending thirty seconds making their their fish decision mm-hmm. and isn't really going to pay that much attention. It's it's an easy uh, it's an easy and and somewhat uh, difficult to nail crime. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we have to go to a 30-second sponsor drop. Tim, please stay on the line and we'll be right back um, and uh, we'll talk more about fisheries management. Thanks so much. Some grabbed my hook and they got my bait and they jerked me out in the middle of the lake. Some jumped. I got sunk. Baptized on a credit. Fishing down on the muddy bank, I felt a pull and I give a big yank. I hauled out three old rubber boots and a Ford radiator and a Chevrolet coupe. Handed in for national defense. Sitting in a boat with a bucket of beer and I hadn't caught nothing but I didn't much care. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. And we're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, and that was the voice of the one and only Brian Kenny, the, the ultimate spreadsheet cowboy from the Hearst Ranch. We thank our sponsors over and over again. Hearst Ranch has been with us forever. So um, we are back on with uh, Tim Fitzgerald from the Environmental Defense Fund. And um, Tim, we were talking about fisheries management. Um, I wanted to just touch for a second on, um, to, to take a little further, this kind of tracking system that you're talking about uh, with Gulf Wild. Do you see a lot of um, fisheries going more and more towards that kind of managed uh, tracking systems. Um, and, and how do those tracking tools help you manage the fisheries? Because what you're trying to do is control populations, right? Or how much fishing comes out of a particular population at any given season. 
Does that yeah, these, make sense to you? These traceability systems are, all the ones that we've talked about today so far, all voluntary. So these are things that the fishermen themselves have implemented to uh, access new markets, to, to help brand their product or distinguish it in, in some kind of way. Uh, but at, at their core, these are really just electronic fishery information systems, and you could use the information for any number of things. And management is certainly an important one, and we, uh, we think that this really fine-scale, high-resolution information could be used for better management, for better science. Uh, there are all these cool features of this program where you can overlay their, their catch information over uh, oceanographic conditions, so you could see you know, where catch is going up or down based on temperature or currents or any number of things. So there's all kinds of applications for these things voluntary uh, or regulatory that, that haven't even been tapped into yet. Mm-hmm. I think it's really wicked cool. Now, recently, um, you pointed me towards an editorial in the Boston Globe um, where two of your colleagues who are um, working in the New England fisheries area uh, were encouraging consumers to buy New England ground fish, including Atlantic cod. And Atlantic cod, of course, was the subject of Mark Kurlansky's wonderful book, Cod, and it talked all about how the you know th- that industry had collapsed, which it had. And I guess cod is one of the great success stories stories of the new catch share management program that is being implemented across the country, but is not fully, I mean, not every single fishery is, has adopted catch shares. Am I correct in saying that? Correct. There, there are about, uh, depending if you count state uh, and federal fisheries, there's somewhere in the, the range of 20 to 25 of them that have this uh, new management program called catch shares. And in almost every case, these are these are fisheries that uh, that wanted this style of management, that, that voted for it in their fisheries, mm-hmm. and it was um, kind of developed from the ground up. It's not a, uh, it's not a system that's imposed from Washington D.C. or mandated by Congress, mm. but it is has been shown in lots of other countries, and this one to be a very effective way of um, kind of helping fisheries to stabilize and rebound and become economically and environmentally healthy. Can you describe exactly how it works? Because I I think most people are probably not too savvy about what, you know, what does it mean when somebody has a catch share? It's actually a very complicated system. I mean, I had a hard time too. If you think of uh, the way that most fisheries are managed, it's usually some kind of open access where there's a season and there may or may not be a a quota for the whole fishery that's been set by the the management body. Mm -hmm. And I'm exaggerating, but a starting gun goes off, all the boats race out to sea and try and catch as much fish as they can before the closing gun goes off and the, the fishery is closed. And that's the, the quintessential race to fish or tragedy of the commons where the incentive is really to just catch as much as you can before your competitor does right. uh, or the fishery is closed. And in, in that kind of scenario, there's not a lot of conservation-oriented behavior going on because you don't have the time and you don't have the incentive to to fish deliberately to try and avoid areas of sensitive habitat or marine mammals or sea turtles or things like that. So that's kind of the the conventional style of management that's caused a lot of these fisheries to be in crisis over the last 
few decades. It has the. Um, I'm, I'm also going to jump here and point out that it has the uh, corollary effect of of depressing the price. Um, for said fish Absolutely. in season, because if everybody comes in with the same same fish, then the price goes down because there's too much of it. So it creates a glut in the consumer market, um, and that's that's Absolutely. another that's been a big incentive, I think, for fishermen to adopt the pro- the program. But the way catch shares work, as I understand it, is because this is a relatively new program. It came in around what 2009, 2010. At least in New England, and in New England, yeah, it's been uh, a little bit less than two years now that yeah. the program's been on the water. And catch shares is really uh, dependent on two things. One is a, a scientifically determined catch limit, so we need to know how much fish we're going to uh, allow the fishery to catch, and then it assigns portions of that catch to individuals or communities or cooperatives, or in the case of New England, these things called sectors. Right. And so it's that individual assignment and accountability that really um, allows the, the fishery to become better uh, economically and environmentally. So instead of now rushing out when you know you only have three days to fish, you have a secure privilege and you know how much quota you're going to be given for the year, so you can fish whenever you want. Uh-huh. You can fish when you're... Your boat is in top operating condition. You can fish when the weather is the best. You can fish when uh, the price for your product is the best. Mm-hmm. And so you're allowed to change the way that you do business and have much greater degree of control over your destiny and, and what's going on in the fishery and the environment. And we've seen time and time again that this just results in huge conservation and economic benefits to, to just about everybody. That makes sense to me. But one thing about catch shares, which I've heard from fishermen, um, is that they're based on allocations uh, that are leftovers from previous management strategies. So, for example, if you have um, a really big boat or you have three or four big boats and you're a mid or bottom line trawler and you can pull in, you know, and your allocation was X, then your catch share is based on that allocation. Whereas if you have a smaller boat and you had smaller allocations, then you still get a small or catch share. And that, to me, I think has been um, a real sticking point for a lot of fishermen who are on the smaller scale. So how, how can that problem, do you think, be addressed to make it a little more equitably um, distributed in terms of what your catch share is? I would, I would definitely say that the beauty of catch shares is in the design. And if you, if you set your goals right at the beginning of the, the program, you can, you can design a catch share to do just about anything. Mm -hmm. For example, in Alaska, they were uh, in the halibut fishery. They had both a a large boat fleet and a small boat fleet, and and when they were designing their catch catch share program, they they said very deliberately, we want to make sure that the small boats are protected and that they stay in the fleet, uh, you know, into the foreseeable future, and so we're only going to allow uh, small boats to trade with small boats and big boats to trade with big boats and um, no no one vessel can own any more than I think two or three or five percent of the quota so it really huh. put a cap on the concentration of quota into uh, just a, just a couple of big businesses. Has that been and, universal though? Because I mean one guy I talked to out on the Pacific Coast was like I hate catch shares because I'm getting screwed by these big boats. So is it individual to each fishery, like how they set that up, and thus it's kind of a political battle that's fought in in that area? Right. There are no there are no federal guidelines that right. you must do a catch share in a specific way. That's 
in some in some ways that's the, the beauty of the system and that these are these are bottom up um, styles of management that are really developed at the regional level and so the people in New England design the New England program people in the Pacific design the Pacific program and it it is much better that way rather than having it happen at the congressional level or the um, you know the executive level so um, there's uh, there, there's many ways to do it, and every every region kind of is in charge of their own destiny, if you will. Hmm. Interesting. Um, just to jump ahead a little bit, because we, we're going to have to wrap it up in a couple of minutes. Um, I, there was a Whole Foods has uh, a very much touted, uh, heavily publicized program about their sustainable fishing. Um, you know what they're buying for the for the stores now, and um, Scott Brown, the hotly contested governor's gubernatorial candidate, um, wrote in that he was concerned that his de- that the Whole Foods decision had more to do with political correctness than with sound reasoning, and he felt he he accused Whole Foods of of having their quotas be- or their uh, purchasing decisions based on uncertain science. What do you think about that? Do you think Whole Foods went too far? Do you think they don't go far enough? Or, or is there more room for maneuvering within that, within their, um, you know, where their stores are located, depending, and that depends on what they buy for their store? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, you know, if they say, no, you can't buy cod, then, because they use that as an example, of something that they felt was endangered, and so they were no longer right. going to buy cod. And then, at the same time, the EDF is saying you should buy cod from New England fishermen, just you know, because they have a quota and they need to keep managing it. So, what do you? Th- who do you think is right here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is Whole Foods well, like right, have they course. gone too far? Is I guess is what my question is. Well, I, I think the the beauty of the sustainable seafood uh, movement and issue right now is that it's. It's okay to have different positions on the same issue, and um, doesn't necessarily mean one person is wrong. But and from our perspective, as as a as an environmental advocacy organization who is actively working on the ground to improve fisheries, we want to do what we can to see those fisheries rewarded once they improve. And mm-hmm. as you saw in the Boston Globe, we think uh, having sectors in place now for a couple of years in New England that. That, that fishery and those fishermen that have made those tough choices and have started to turn the corner, they deserve support in the marketplace in some way. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be on a red, yellow, green card or a retailer saying we're only going to buy from this fishery now. Um, but they, at the very least, they shouldn't be uh, hurt further in the marketplace because there are some real success stories to tell there. Right. Now, Whole Foods is they're 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 uh, a corporation. They they have their own purchasing decisions. They are, I, I think, truly a leader in the sustainable seafood sourcing world. They've done a lot of really great things. They support the Marine Stewardship Council, um, and they have two really great partners on their seafood program in Monterey Bay Aquarium and the Blue Ocean Institute. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that help guide them on what to buy or not to buy. So. Um, they can they can pick and choose what they want to do and what they don't want to do. I think what we wrote in the in the the Boston Globe was less about condemning Whole Foods for its decision and just kind of speaking more broadly to the the seafood industry to say 
there's there's a real success story here. Let's find a way to support it. Right. And it could be that uh, in a year or two or three that Whole Foods, uh, through its partners, determines that that the fishery has done enough to meet its criteria mm-hmm. and will begin sourcing again. And I think that's that's a day that we all would look forward to and would be would be very happy to experience. Well, I think their purchasing is probably on a volume that would have a rather significant impact anyway on a smaller fishery. Um, but anyway, with that, Tim, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, and I urge people to go look at the website, uh, gulfwild.com, to learn more about what the EDF is doing um, with Gulf uh, Seafood and with um, fisheries programs and managements um, altogether. Um, thanks so much, Tim. I really appreciate your time today on the phone. That was great. I hope you'll come back. Thanks, Katie. We'd love to come back. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll find plenty to talk about. <laughs> um, next up, just for a second, we have Jack Inslee on the phone. Jack is at Bonnaroo in Tennessee um, on the ground doing some serious reporting. Jack, are you there? I'm here. What a familiar voice, Katie. Uh, I, to not hear you in the studio. I know. I, I, I miss having you in there, but it's it's good to have Joe. He's fabulous, too. So tell so, me about Bonnaroo. Have you had fun? Very funny and a very cool tie-in because I also am avoiding fish, but for a very different reason. I just don't like their music. <laughs> You're kidding. I thought fish was the younger generation's Grateful Dead. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a deadhead. I'm a hip-hop guy, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, I hear that. So how's the so, festival man, actually, been? It's cool, Katie. We're, we're here with Heritage Radio Bonnaroo. Um, a lot of positivity. It seems that a lot of people are aware of us already, which is great. And, oh, I love that. Uh, something that you might find interesting, I, uh, you know, they have a food truck oasis, and uh, a lot of local Asheville, North Carolina food trucks. And one of the ladies I was um, lucky enough to meet, she does a Lebanese food truck. And she actually fought the city of Asheville to make food trucks legal. Wow. Uh, they, they were not before she filed an ordinance. So we should definitely follow up and look into that on your show. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Sure. Absolutely. Because yeah. we know that, I mean, there have been attacks on food trucks in, the, in New York City. And the mayor has, has properly struck them down. But I remember a couple of years ago when um, uh, a New York City councilwoman from the Upper East Side was like, I don't want any more food trucks. And, you know, right, there, was yeah. A, yeah, there was a big brouhaha over that. Um, so you're back when? Tomorrow? Are you driving? I am indeed, yes. You're driving through the night tonight? We are driving through the night, about a 15-hour drive from Yikes. Manchester, Tennessee to New York City. Dude, well, you are a rock star. Do you get some good interviews? Absolutely. A lot of good pieces on the way. Okay, I can't wait to hear them. Thanks for calling in, Jack. And thanks to my listeners and thanks to my sponsor, Hearst Ranch. Um, Next week, I'm hoping that my guest will be Raul Baxter. Um, He's not a household name to anybody except for some geek like me who reads MeetingPlace.com religiously. But um, Mr. Baxter is a cattle industry veteran of 30 years and a former executive at Smithfield, as well as uh, Sara Lee Meat Solutions. Um, So really is um, one of the guys who is deeply embedded in the commodity cattle industry, and I think it should be a very interesting conversation. We'll be talking about industry transparency. That's assuming he doesn't chicken out between now and then. This has been Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. 
You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.